0: Ads, schmads. If you don't want ads, that's okay. Choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And hey presto, no ads.
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
3: This podcast is powered by ACAST.
2: Wow, look at this. My God. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This beats the bloody podcast. Doesn't it, so Josh? Just... Beats, beats me and him sitting on our tod. so, oh God, people are listening. Uh, listen, it's wonderful to see you all here. Terrifyingly, John has notes for this gig. Right. For the first which time Which is time a ever. first, which is a first, so <laughs> let's <laughs> go and do it. Yep, absolutely.
0: And actually... Actually, uh, just on the podcast, I don't know if you noticed, know Mike, but we are up to something like 25, over 25 million downloads. And oh that's God. all thanks to you. Yeah, yeah, so thanks yeah. very
3: much. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And
2: I have to it's, say. There's no accounting for taste, John. You know? No, well,
0: that's it. That's it. I, but I have to say, I absolutely love doing this podcast. Not least because I get to sit down with this fella every week and talk <laughs> shite and have no, a bit it's of it's educated stuff. <laughs> it is, yes. Well, I feel like I'm an economic scholar at this stage. You
2: are, John. You are. You are. No, <laughs> thanks, it. thanks, Teach.
0: Thanks. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it's been, Look. again, it's been a lovely thing. We started it, of course, just before COVID. I had no real expectation yeah. of, you know, whether anybody would listen, how we sustain it? Uh, you guys probably know that John and I have known each other pathetically for over 50 years. Yeah. And uh, when I think sometimes when I'm chatting to John doing the podcast, I kind of look over him and all I see is a five-year-old boy, <laughs> right? And I think he has the same feeling. And I, it's 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 very special for me, you know, to talk to somebody. Like John about economics over the years because it's a bit like it's, it all makes sense now. All, Absolutely. That, all that all that stuff, you know. Well, we, we
0: used to we used to build a lot of uh, tree huts actually. Yeah. Back in the day, you
2: weren't a great architect, I remember.
0: No, no, no. That. So we went into this game instead. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, just so you know, John and I were were brought up on a, a kind of a very typical, I think, kind of Dublin housing estate. There was a uh, hundred houses on this estate, and given there was about three to five or six children in every house, that meant there was about 600 kids on the road. Yeah. Like, you kind of think about it, it's kind of mad now. So it was Mayhem. a, bit, it was a little bit like an Apache reservation. And uh, John and I were both brought up on the top of the road, uh, which was very, remember, very territorial as well. Yeah. Like you didn't want to go down to the bottom of the road. No, no. No, no. Just to be killed they, at they the bottom of the road. There were people at the bottom. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. Uh, no, but it's, 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 uh, it's been a lovely, lovely time. And again, as John said, you know, uh, that many million downloads is kind of mad, but uh, we'll
0: keep doing it. Yeah, no, but it's, it's going well. But, you know, in our usual kind of, we got together earlier on this week and we we're kind of thinking about what are we going to do for the show? We're going to do a bit of this and a bit of that. Oh, I'll do this and oh, I'll do that. And the usual whirl of ideas that goes through that fella's head. And so I've ended up with a huge list of stuff. I know, stuff, this is
2: terrifying. Which
0: I, I guarantee we won't get through it all, but we're going to give it a lash. Yeah, uh, and we might bounce around Jordan a little bit, said. but that's uh, yeah, yeah, great. Okay, that's let's par for the course. But actually, first of all, what I do want to do is I want to say congratulations, David.
2: Oh my goodness, Jeff, that's lovely.
0: The... Uh, you have become a TED talker. Yeah, cause... a TED talk was out this week. Yeah, so far, so it came out Wednesday, I think it was. Wednesday, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's, he's so modest, he won't say this, but already there's 350,000 downloads. Yeah, is no,
2: it's pretty it's impressive. It is, it's, 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 it's amazing but I, I, I was doing it I thought it was kind of more of like a father TED talk <laughs> <laughs> like you know it's a funny thing it's, it's always been my way even like doing TV and things like there's a part of my brain that's kind of like a little kid and you're up there uh, so just to, I'll tell you where I was so it was in, it was in Vancouver and I, I don't know about you but you're the branding department of Vancouver John mm. it claims it's a lovely place yeah that's what I've heard yeah. not at all I wouldn't, I wouldn't put a dog out there <laughs> It lashed rain for a week, I swear to God. And then the Canadians told me that it's obviously on the Pacific. It was freezing cold, lashing rain, but the difference between doing an Irish gig and an American TED-type gig is the following. An Irish event, or even a British event, you know, there's an element of, you know, let's make it up as we go, looseness and chat. The Yanks aren't for that carry-on at (laughs) all. the The Yank likes the structure. Uh, and so much so, John, that they, they were kind of requiring us to learn the speech off by heart. And I can't do that. Uh, it just it doesn't, it doesn't strike me as, uh, as being... But, that... it,
0: but it is... Just, like, the format of TED, we won't spend too long on TED, but the format of TED is... Is a really strict 18 minutes.
2: Yeah, and that, of course, me, I was blathering yeah. on for hours. I, I exactly. mean, <laughs> so, no, but it was great. It was really, it's a look, it's a really nice thing to be asked to do. But what was uh, the gist
0: of it? What was the, so gist the
2: gist of the, okay, so. Don't give us the whole talk now. No, but, I'll, I'll give <laughs> you the whole talk. If you're back here in 19 minutes, no, <laughs> the gist of it was the power of unconventional thinking. So, what has always intrigued me. About
0: Actually, do you know, at this point, I'm going to recommend that you go and watch the TED Talk for yourself. It's really, really good. And you can see it on TED.com. But just to say that Maca went on to talk about how our education system doesn't really promote unconventional thinking. In actual fact, it's more geared towards conventional thinking, which ultimately leads to groupthink. So let's pick it up from there.
2: That's why we make so you take the 2008 crisis.
0: Yes, I was going to ask you that. Yeah.
2: Why did all the economists, our vast majority, miss the biggest crisis? In monetary and economic history in our lifetime, not because they were unintelligent, but because they all thought the same way. Yeah, they couldn't entertain being wrong because being wrong was an affront to their status <laughs> as an individual. And rather than stick their hand up and say, "Maybe this is going wrong," we went over the cliff together. And as the Queen of England said, "This." You know, the Queen actually arrived in the LSE about four or five weeks after the. Uh, the crash, and she said, If you chaps were so clever, why did you not see this coming? And it's it a, really a fair f- point. It a, really is a fair, fair point. question. And what she was saying is, What's going on? So, so, what so I was are you saying say that
0: Yates is it's the opposite no, of Yeats, it's group groupthink. What, what
2: I'm saying is, at tipping points, at we should always try and move out of the tyranny of our peer group and embrace other people's ideas, mm. embrace their worldview and equip ourselves with something that's much more likely to reflect the panoply of humanity yeah. than the very narrow gauge view that unfortunately has become, I think, the calling card of, of, of my profession, economics. So, so so, doing something like, for example, this or the podcast, Economics, yeah. is all about trying to look at the economic world, a little bit differently.
0: Absolutely. So, so it's the, our educational system is tending towards creating this kind of group thing yeah. and this institution. But kind yeah. of just ask your points of note? You, you were part of that institutional thing. You were a central banker at one
2: stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I was. I was. I was. I was that kid. You know. But I mean, I think that sometimes when you're in the machine uh Things become apparent to you at quite a young age. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, so you, so how many years were you in the central in the central bank? bank?
2: About three or four. Very. Yeah, I, I yeah, left yeah. quite quickly.
0: But, it, but, it, but it was at a time. This is the early nineties, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it yeah. was also at a time when you were. I'm right in saying that you were writing or helping write That's... speeches for Bertie Ahern. No, on... no. This
2: is this is this is this is a great myth of Ireland. Uh, it's a, it's and then slagging them off after. Somebody, somebody writes and then suddenly, no, 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 because Bertie was actually the, the, the finance uh, minister at the time. Actually, actually I'll tell you Bertie's story. Go on, tell uh, me. So there was a big currency crisis in 1992, you, you might remember, and uh, Bertie was the finance minister, and we were in the central bank trying to write the, the position papers for everything and, and whatever, and I was the very junior on, on this team. And so basically what happened was the Irish government said, we're not going to devalue the currency. We're going to fight and we're going to spend the reserves. And the English had devalued and we were saying, we're not English. We're going to be like Germans and la, la, la. So we were spending lots and lots of reserves. And eventually the policy uh, was, uh, was defeated, right? And we, and we devalued the currency. But Bertie at the time was the finance minister. And I'd never heard this syntax in Dublin before, uh, the way he spoke. He came into a meeting and I was in the back and there was a senior economist and Bertie looked at us and he said, if it had went in earlier, it would have went in quicker. <laughs> right? So get your head around that, right? If it had a went in earlier, it would have went in quicker, right? Now, what he meant by saying is, had we devalued earlier, the fall in the currency would have been more precipitous, right? Right. Okay. And I remember looking at him. i thinking, economic I remember, Yeah, but I remember looking at him and saying, "Wow, this guy actually creates a world around himself that is incomprehensible." Because he knew exactly what was going on.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it
2: was pretty. But but I, I do remember that. The, I got a, one very good lesson. The central bank was also wow. at the time there was this thing. Uh, the IMF have this thing called Article Four, and right. it means every year the IMF send out two. Delegates from Washington to try and write a report about. Two G men. Two G men, yeah, exactly. And they look like Mormons, apparently. pair, right? Right, right yeah, Big, yeah. long, like, you know, that kind of American look. You feel they're going to sell you a Bible yeah. or something. Perfect teeth. Uh, yeah, oh, great teeth. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gorgeous teeth. Gorgeous teeth. I mean, the, the orthodontic bills alone, you know, <laughs> yeah. the small GDP of a small African country. And, uh, I remember the, the, this, and so the two Yanks come in and they're very, very confused because at the time we were trying to say in Ireland that there was no tax evasion in the country, right? But at the same time, we just issued an amnesty, right, for tax evaders and we got loads of money in the back door, right? And so the Yanks were trying to square this and saying, yeah. you know, how do you square this? And there was one uh, economist, older older guy, and this is when you could smoke in your office, Right? Yeah. so there'll be a, there'll be two ashtrays full of major, right, overflowing major, and he does yellow fag fingers and a major, the yeah. Yeah, major yeah, yeah, fingers, also, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Rockman's fingers, and the two yanks are, are looking at him perplexed, and he says, "I can see that you are perplexed, gentlemen." I Spoke can.
3: like
0: Bertie then. He didn't did.
2: You? No, he was actually he was. In, the, 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 there was a, there was, a, there was, a, there was a, there's a sort of a, a cadre of northside economists who went to that school. What's it called? Where Charlie he went in Fairview? Joey's yeah, in Fairview, yeah. right? And of course, the Black Rock College boy. They hated oh, me. Oh God, yeah. They hated me. And, God forbid! David. Uh, but he said, he, "I remember he said." He said, "Now you are complex, and I, I, I do see this in your eyes." He says, uh, <sighs> "Gentlemen, I'd like to give you some understanding." He said, and I was waiting for a pearl of wisdom to drop. And he said, "The laws of economics, gentlemen, stop at Hollyhead." <laughs> I just thought I love it. That's that's what I've learned in the Central Bank of Ireland.
0: Well, I, I tell you, I, I, I do have to follow that with a story of uh, Mac in the in the Central Bank. I was uh, this is early nineties, and I was in London at this stage, and I was working away. And I was back for a week, and I hadn't seen Mac in, in a while. So I said, "Do you know what? Give him a shout. We'll out for a pint after work." So I said, i would give him." proper notice and give me a ring about four o'clock, pick I rem- him up about five, this. all that kind of stuff. So I, I rang the central bank. Of course, this was a time when we didn't have mobile phones. So I whipped out the golden pages, find <laughs> the number for the central bank, there it is, rang it up. Of course, what I didn't realise is that the reception closes at four o'clock. It's
2: the civil service, John. You know, yeah,
0: all over the country. You've got cinema done. to go to and pints to have. So it was manned by the security guard. And I rang the, the, the number and the conversation went a little bit like this. Hello, Central Bank. Uh, hi, is uh, David McWilliams there, please? Who? Uh, uh, D- D- David McWilliams? And he's, well, David. And he's rushing through his papers and trying to find numbers and couldn't find. And he's holding the phone out here and he shouts over to his mate across the hall. and says, Hey, Jimmy, who's David McWilliams? And you hear this from the other side. And your man goes, oh, Redzer, the fella walks around here thinking he owned it, the place. <laughs> I go, yeah, yeah, that's him, yeah. No, he's long gone. <laughs> and of course, it was on Tuesday, I think, which is Tuesday. movie afternoon. Movie
2: afternoon, the <laughs> ambassador of cinema started at ten past four. And I was a big, I was an addict to going to the movies in the afternoon. But come anyway.
0: here, <laughs> come here, come here, come here. we come back to unconventional thinking and... The power of it in a few minutes, but I do want to talk about another unconventional thinker that you draw on a lot, which is uh, Mr. Jimmy Joyce. Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, and by, by the way, actually, by the way, before we get there, it is another congratulations <laughs> to David. He, he he got the James Joyce Award from the LNH <laughs> cd
2: <laughs>
0: there, uh, In fairness, that's pretty good. That yeah, is yeah. pretty good. <laughs>
2: But, this, 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 it's funny you talk about this, this is this not supposed to happen, this is like having, this having a bragging wall. Do you remember yeah. years ago? It's like this is your life. This is, like, <laughs> this is your life. I remember years ago in my granny's house in Cork, every granny, you remember the, the good room, people in a good yes, room? Yes, yeah, yeah. And our good room in our granny's house was so good that I wasn't good enough to go into it. You know? <laughs> it was kept for people who were gooder than us. And I remember myself and, of my, and my three, I've got cousins who are triplets. yeah. Uh, from West Cork and yeah, they're known yeah, I in know the, them, yeah, they're yeah. known the village as the Three Twins right? <laughs> 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 it's great <crazy>. come here langer lad. the Three Twins and uh, in our granny's house, was, it was a bit like, it was a bragging wall, right? Yeah. The, well, the bragging of the family, you know, the bragging of it. The, and, and, and they'd be like, such and such went to university and he went to New Zealand. Scrolls so, yeah. and, certificates and I remember and there was a scroll, there was a fellow with a parchment and this kind of sort of bizarre yeah. sort of 1914 looking sort of grey photograph with a parchment, you know, look as if he went to UCC and to this day, nobody has a rush as who he was. <laughs> He, he came like, with the frame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's Uncle Johnny. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is like the part, No, no, the UCD. No, that was really nice. It's a, it's 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 an award given by the students, which I think is so much nicer than than for me than yes. maybe getting an yeah, award yeah. from you know because the, you know part of part of my whole thing, if there is if there is some logic in this in this career, John, is is maybe teaching economics, you know, and explaining economics to students and to to, to people who. For whom, you know, it looks quite complicated from the yeah. outside. And, and if you can break it down, it's wonderful. So the, 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 the LNH was, was uh, an award for, from the students. Uh, it's called the Joyce Award, but I, I think it's just because... But James... I know you're
0: a big lover of Joyce. Yeah. I, I know yeah. that. And, and, like, what does... In actual fact, Mac has been trying to get me to read <laughs> <laughs> this Ulysses. Nice. I'm sure everyone has read Ulysses here. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Twice. Uh,
0: so, I, uh, and I haven't read it, obviously, for obvious reasons, but he got me to download the audio book, <laughs> which I did recently. I'm still in chapter one, because <laughs> I keep falling asleep. <laughs> Yeah. And it's not because it's not a good book nor nothing. No, no, it's a great book. <laughs> just,
2: and this, I, is, this, is, this is the Jim Norton version of... Which of is the fab. Music.
0: Like, it's really well read, yeah. brilliantly performed. But I flick it on at night, and I... <laughs> like, a, a few paragraphs in, and I woke up in the middle of the night a little Whoa. while ago, and we must be in Chapter Four, or something. To <laughs> some of roaring in my ear. Yeah, yeah, and he's yeah. going, and there's Bloom with his knock me down <laughs> cigar.
2: You can tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's.
0: It, I'll tell you about it. Right, this is. What 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 has Joyce okay. got to tell us about? Actually, I, I think
2: I think quite a lot, and this comes to the the Yates and the Joyce's, mm. is to look beyond the the economics. Yeah. You know, so around this time of the year it's actually a little bit earlier, the end of October in nineteen oh nine. On a very unseasonably warm October evening, on the mailboat between Hollyhead and Dunleary, there is a tall, very skinny, 27-year-old man in a white suit and tennis shoes, and he is puking violently over the edge of the mailboat, something that John and I did many times on our way home from London. (laughs) Okay. Yes. And that's James Joyce, and he's coming home from Trieste, and the question is, why is he coming home? This always intrigued me. And in order to answer that question, you have to go back about six weeks. Joyce was constantly evading his dad. Right, his dad would send James money in, in Trieste, which is was then in Austria, Hungary uh, is now in Italy, and Joyce consistently never wrote back to his father. So the dad sent the younger sister, Eva Joyce, over to Trieste to see what is James doing? And the dad actually very much believed in Joyce's genius. Mm. This is quite an interesting story, uh, how the father was was unambiguous about Joyce's uniqueness. And so Eva Joyce arrives in Trieste and they can't find James. And the reason they can't find James (laughs) is he's in the cinema and he is obsessed by cinemas. So if we go back uh, 115 years, 120 years, the most extraordinary entertainment technology of the time is the cinema. Mm. People are fascinated by the cinema. In Trieste, there's over 30 cinemas in this town. Really? Trieste, yeah, over 30, right? So Trieste well, the is population this of what about 240,000, right? And this was very wow. typical of Europe at the time. Mm. Europeans were obsessed by it. It was like it was like Netflix. It was the big new technology. Yeah. It was like the internet. But there wasn't that much content, though, was there? There was an enormous amount of content. Okay. I, I, I'm like you. I thought there wasn't. There yeah. was an enormous amount of content because what they got was everybody who'd actually been a theatre actor switched over to the cinema. Right. Okay. So there was a huge, huge amount. But Joyce was obsessed by this. And Eva Joyce also enjoyed the cinema. And she said to Joyce in passing one afternoon... James, do you know that there are no cinemas in Dublin? So there was 30 cinemas in Trieste, 30. And nothing in Dublin, mm. nor was there a cinema in Cork, nor was there a cinema in Belfast. So Joyce said, no cinemas. Like This was, would have been a bit like having no Wi-Fi okay, okay, yes, at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so Joyce said, we're going to make our fortune. I'm going to go back and open the first ever cinema in Ireland but he had no money, so this is a mm. problem. So he had to find investors, and he found investors in Trieste because there had been a whole infrastructure of commercial people, people coming and going. It had become the biggest port in the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, which meant that after the Suez Canal... So the Suez Canal is knocked through the land, basically, in northern, e- northern Egypt in 1867... It's opened in, in in 1874. It's French engineering. And what this did, the Suez Canal, changed the axis of the world. Because yeah. rather than going to Asia around the back of South Africa and up, you could go through the Suez Canal. And the quickest way in Europe to Suez was through the Adriatic. Yeah. And Trieste was in the top of the Adriatic. So it profoundly changed the commercial geography of Europe. So Trieste is the big port and the only port of the Austrian Empire which Extended all the way into Galicia and Poland and Ukraine, right, was through this port. And Joyce, of course, wanted to be where the action is. This was a fantastic, it was full of money, etc. Anyway, he gets the money, he comes home, he sets up the first ever cinema in Ireland called the Volta Cinema. It's opened on Mary Street on the 20th of December, 1909. So within eight weeks, your uh, your birthday shot. John, just,
0: oh, just, I have a list here for you, about. the I way, know. Mac.
2: The great thing of it, John had his birthday on the 20th of December, so we could give him one present for two, which was, there's your Christmas and your birthday present. <laughs> I know, I
0: was always hard, do by.
2: <laughs> but, so Joyce comes... Oh, yeah, exactly. Joyce comes home and he sets up the cinema. Now, I've always been intrigued as to why or how the brain that wrote Ulysses... Now, imagine that brain... Mm. was the same brain that felt compelled to open the first cinema. And I've always been intrigued as to why this is. And it has struck me for a long, long time that the brain of the artist and the brain of the entrepreneur are very, very similar. So if you know, and we do know a few artists, and I have a few artists in our our gang of mates, and a few entrepreneurs, Mm. they are incredibly similar in the way they think. So the first thing is they don't want a wage, they don't want a boss, they don't want a job, right? They want to express themselves, they want to change the world, they want to do something differently. When they write books, they're writing books to be better than anything that's ever gone before. When people are opening companies, it's exactly the same impulse. These are sort of disruptive characters. These are people who don't take no for an answer. These are people who live in what I would describe now that we're on the stage, in the theater of risk. Yeah. Okay, on the stage of jeopardy. These are people who are sometimes quite cussed, sometimes quite unpleasant in their single mindedness. But what drives these types of brains is this voice inside them to make a difference, to stamp their authority or their genius or their ability on the world that they see can be improved. Mm. And because they are tend to be typically disruptive people and dissenting people, people who dissent. So the average person who runs a small company is a dissenter. These are people who say, I don't want a job. Yeah. I don't want to work for this. I want to do my own thing. And then it's always intrigued me is what happens to societies that engage with dissenting people, that embrace dissenting people? And if you go back in economic history, what you see is the societies that embrace dissenting people. And when I want to say dissenting people. It could be people who just want to express themselves. It could be culturally, artistically. It could be sexually. It could be emotionally. It could be anything. It's the idea of the tolerant society that embraces people who think, John, about the world differently tends to be rewarded with a very vibrant and flamboyant yeah. economy. So you go back to, for example, the, the Dutch Republic of the early 17th century. What you see where our understanding of economics comes together in one society for the first time ever. What you see is the Dutch brought in Huguenots, they brought in Jewish dissenters, they were very, very open to all sorts of Protestant sects that were being persecuted everywhere. Amsterdam became this extraordinary city, the richest city in the world, by the way, after this happened. Extraordinary city, full of art. I mean, the Dutch masters, full of finance, full of economics, full of commerce, and then, if you look at the types of people who the Dutch embraced, they were all dissenters. That this has fed into my understanding of how this society works. That people have always talked to me about why we are independent for a hundred years odd this year. And John, for the when we were kids, we were born into this society. Why, from 1922? to 1992, was Ireland the worst performing economy in Western Europe? Not the the second worst, the third worst, the worst, right? Yeah, by a long way. By a huge way. And then why after that did Ireland turn around and the last 20 years has been the best performing? Because these are the questions that should exercise you as an economist. Why did this happen? And the typical economic view of Ireland is some fella called Lamas and some other lad called Whittaker did an essay, yeah. right? This is the essay approach to economic development, right? And the essay said that we're going to be open, and that was in 1957. And from then on, Ireland started to grow. That's bullshit. That did not happen. Okay. The economy continued to go sideways and sideways for 40 years. And I believe it's the following, go on. that dissenting societies that embrace different types of people tend to be commercially very, very flamboyant. And the reason that Ireland was backward commercially and economically was because we were dogmatic. We kicked out our dissenters. If you were gay, out you go. If you were divorced, I remember in Windsor Park, people used to whisper divorce. Your man's
3: divorced. Yes, yeah. Right? okay oh, so yeah.
2: Okay, If you were, God forbid, you're a girl, you have an abortion, right? Anything that wasn't part of the mainstream dogmatic it's religious
0: thing. To The group think and exactly. the conventional so thing. So what again, happened yeah. was
2: all those dissenting creative people who found Ireland so suffocating in the 60s and 70s and in the 80s into our yeah, yeah. generation, yeah. they left. They went to New York they went to London they went to wherever and they brought their creativity with them. And so many of them have created a north think about the amazing amount of successful Irish people in the UK, in the US, right? Yeah. Why were they there? Because they were being given the latitude to breathe commercially, individually, emotionally, right? So it always struck me that the reason Ireland was backward had nothing to do with Lamas. And the reason Ireland was backward for so long was because we were dogmatic for so long. What
0: was the turning point then?
2: The turning point was then gradually the society begins to open up in the 1990s. And gradually, we now know in the legislation, because we have it all, but we became accepting. I think we became a kinder society, a got, gentler got rid society. The church. We got rid of the church. We got rid of the extraordinary baggage that forced people to be one type of Irish person. And as we know, there's thousands of types of Irish person. And once we said, you know what? You can, you can, you can hang here. Mm. You can do your thing. Yeah, we yeah, accept yeah. you. What we see is an extraordinary. I wouldn't say it's a correlation but a coincidence of becoming tolerant, open, liberal, and becoming commercially wealthy. Now, people say, oh, yeah, but it wasn't to do with the multinationals. The multinationals wouldn't be here if we weren't tolerant. Yeah. There are many European countries with lower corporate tax rates than us, Bulgaria, Estonia. They're not there. Why? Because they don't offer the package of a lifestyle, that is based on liberalism. It was also and tolerance.
0: education and language. Education, and that kind of stuff. But again, but, we
2: educated people for export. So, what we were doing, we were educating people in the 1960s and 70s, creating dissenters in their head through education. Mm. Then we were trying to funnel them into a dogmatic society. And they said, fuck this, we're leaving.
3: Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah.
2: Which is so, so once. We left in the 80s. We left in the 80s. So, to get back to Joyce, right? The reason Joyce intrigues me is because the artist and the entrepreneur are essential creatures in the economic firmament to create the vibrancy, the dynamism, the creativity which propels for the economy. When you kick them out, as you see in all countries that are dogmatic, the economy goes backwards. When you open it up, the economy responds to the dynamism, the emotional... And the creative juices that flow from dissenters, this, I believe, is something that we don't study enough in economics. I think this is the reason, the proximate reason that Ireland is the country, the economy it is now, yeah. because the society has changed. James Joyce could live in Ireland now. He could never live in Ireland 100 years ago. True. Beckett could never live in Ireland 100 years ago.
0: Mac, I'm, I'm kind of conscious of time. That's why my phone is beeping. It's not my mother, I hope. <laughs> but I'm
2: just conscious of time. i do sorry. Want to sorry I was, was new You we'd got have, me going on these I, things. I, I, I knew it was
0: going to go like this with the list of stuff.
2: This, <laughs> is, this is what Saturday mornings are like in my house when we record the podcast. And John's let's, like, oh, Jesus, Mac, there's stuff going on. Why did you just on. go to McKenna's for a pint and relax with your <laughs> Joyce and Shite and your Dukes and stuff? Dukes and stuff. <laughs>
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
0: Okay, I want to ask you about Europe, the economy of Europe at the moment, because Europe okay. is in a very precarious position at the moment. Exacerbated, of course, by Ukraine, Russia and Israel and Palestine. But as you, I think you used the phrase before to me about, you know, we've outsourced our energy to Russia, our defence to America and our export markets to China. Now all of those are kind of coming home to roost. Yeah, We need some fresh thinking, some unconventional thinking,
1: if if you like. Some
2: thinking, thinking. No, I mean, I think Ireland, particularly since Brexit, of course... Because even though you're not part of the Brexit thing at all, what happens in the UK does affect us. And we have become, obviously, more wedded to the European Union, and I think rightly so. Mm. But then the question is, it's, it's, I think we're at a... You know, when we talk about tipping points, I think we're at one right now. I think this moment, this, this last year or two, these next few years are going to be completely different from anything that went before in our lifetime. Yeah. I've never seen the world so afflicted by conflicts that nobody seems to want to negotiate about. This is what really intrigues yeah. me. Of course, we have Israel-Palestine, which we can talk about. We have the U- Russia-Ukraine, but it's, it's very clear to me that the world is now we're going into a second Cold War, and we are on the American side. Whether we I like it or not. Whether we I, 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 look, I think whether we like it, or look. In the United States, bizarrely, in Ireland, we have an extraordinary friend when it comes to economics. Yeah. I think that what is interesting about globalization is that for the first time ever in the last 15 years or 20 years, small countries, the dilemma for small countries has historically always been that you get beaten up by big countries, which is not nice, mm. right? And economically, if you're a small country, you never have access to bigger markets than your own market. You never have access to more capital than your own capital. You never have access to more talent than your own talent. And as a result, you're hemmed in by what I would call the tyranny of geography or the tyranny of size. And that's the history of small nations all the way through, uh, certainly since the the fall of the Roman Empire and a little bit after that, right? So then you think, okay... What has been different about the last 30 years? One major difference is that small countries have been able to transcend the tyranny of geography and grow over and above and beyond their own market. Ireland is the classic example of that. We have these multinational companies, we can talk about there's downsides and upsides, but what they have done is they have allowed Irish people to work in corporations and set up their own corporations that have global ambitions without ever having to have an army, a navy. Yeah, This has never happened before in humanity, ever, ever. You've never seen small countries have a playing field that is level. That's why when you look at the countries that have done well in the last 20 years, it's been small countries. Yeah. The countries that have done badly are the ones. like Britain has done badly. Britain yeah. can't deal with the reality of globalization because for the first time... Britain isn't the top dog. Yeah. France can't deal. Look at the, the problems with European countries. Most of the countries that have problems, Italy, are countries that had a small or large imperial past. So when you had an imperial past, you basically, you got your market by shooting the natives. That's how Britain grew. Yeah. You know, right? And we did this under American protection. So I think we are in the American camp. There are problems with the United States. There's no doubt of that. But there are cultural, linguistic, demographic, and family links with the United States that are incredibly strong. But up until 24 months ago, I suspect, we could play all the games. We could be nice to Russia. We could be nice to China. Mm. We could be nice to America. Now the United States is going to require us to make a choice. Yeah. And when I say require being in the American world will be conditional on not being in the other world. And that, I think, is the same. You're with us or against us. You're with us or against us. And that will be the same for most European countries. Now, the fascinating thing is that Putin and Xi have met 42 times in the last 10 years. 42 times. This is an amazing observation, right? So Putin and Xi have sat down and they weren't talking about who's going to go and get a few points. And
0: they're also giving your man, Kim, the time of day as well. Yeah,
2: that, I think that's an embarrassment to them. I think, you know, you he's, think, like, or, he's like, he's you remember the Egypt in Windsor Park he had to say <laughs> hello to? But what, what I mean is that we are now in a moment where we will be in one side of this camp. Mm. And the war in Ukraine absolutely solidified that sense. And I think Putin and Xi have been sitting there, their, their narrative for the West is that we are decadent, we are weak, we are clearly unable to unify around any issue because we are so decadent and because we are so wealthy as a as an area. The war in They're Ukraine... They're not wrong, though. In the case of Ukraine, they were wrong, because the Europeans... The,
0: yeah, for U- Ukraine, but, but in a lot of the other issues that we're seeing now... For instance, Israel. Well, this and is Palestine. this is
2: the, this is the thing. So this is why there's many reasons we can talk about Israel and Palestine, the human rights abuse, the wholesale murder yeah. of children. But if you look at it from a geostrategic play, what Putin and Xi, but particularly Putin, have been looking for is what they call in politics a wedge issue, an issue that actually divides the West. Yeah. They were hoping that in Ukraine they would have the wedge issue we'd all sit back and say, oh, don't worry, just take Ukraine. We didn't. So they miscalculated. But in Israel and Palestine, they have the issue because the street, and I mean the Irish street, is now at odds with the Irish government. The British street is at odds. And so what we're seeing is a popular movement around sympathy for Palestinians which is building into, I think, something much bigger than we think in the West. This is driving a wedge between America and Europe and within the European Union between various different states. And in Iran, Putin in particular has a an attack dog, so to speak, mm. because Iran controls Hezbollah, It finances not exclusively, but to a degree, Hamas. And what Putin has realized is this is the issue. There's always an issue that divides people. And I think when you stand back and look at history, we are at this moment. So how does it end then? So what I think is that Xi and Putin, because when I say Xi and Putin, there's no doubt in my mind, Putin would never have risked invading Ukraine had he not at least got a tacit, understanding in mm. China. Russia without China is nothing, right? But with China, it's something huge. And with Iran, they can turn up and down the heat yeah. all they want. And turning up and down the heat, I don't think they give a damn, really, for Palestinian people. But I think what they do give a damn for, they give a damn for the United States. And the way they see this playing out is the following. Because the United States left and you, you know I'm I'm on Bernie's uh, Bernie Sanders, yes. Yes. so I'm on the board of Bernie Sanders Think Tank, which is which has been fascinating for me because it brings me into contact with the American trade union left, mm. which I'd never known before. They uh,
0: very different too. Yeah, there are trade ver- unions here. They
2: are very different. Uh, I tell you, we've, I went to I went to Bernie's Think Tank in Vermont about a year or two ago, and uh, I was supposed to speak at at two in the afternoon, and about six o'clock. We were still waiting to speak, and it brought to mind the great quote from Oscar Wilde when George Bernard Shaw, who was probably the most best-known socialist and fabian in the world in in, in, in 1890, and and Oscar Wilde and Shaw were probably the two most famous Irish people in the world, and Shaw was trying to get Wilde to become a socialist, to give the socialists this imprimatur of the artist and the flamboyance and la-la-la. And he was pleading with Wilde. He says, why don't you become a socialist? And Wilde says, because your meetings go on too long. <laughs> and it's true, they talk all the time. So, but in the, in, the Bernie <laughs> camp, in the Bernie camp, what I'm saying is that I think the American left is about to split. It's an election year.
0: Yes, it is, yeah.
2: Trump <coughs> and Biden me. are neck and neck. You might remember a guy called Ross Perot years yeah, ago. Yeah, I do in an election that is neck and neck, if a third candidate comes in that takes a disproportionate of the vote from one side to the other, the other guy wins. There is a significant chance that a gentleman called Cornel West, who is an amazing intellectual left-wing, black preacher, unbelievable, will emerge As the pro-Palestinian anti-establishment candidate in the American election, Mm. he will win maybe four or five percent of the vote. Those four or five percent will be taken from Joe Biden, and Trump will win. Good. And that's what Putin wants. Because Trump has said he will pull out of NATO, he will become isolationist, and then the Europe is going to become undefended, undefended against Russia. They keep turning up and down the heat in Israel Palestine. They draw the Israelis into this rage. And we have in the next 24 months a recipe, which I think is a central case, not a risk case, for total chaos. And this is why, when you asked me the last few weeks, why have you, you know, if you did ask me, you know, Michael, you're more subdued and you're a bit more worried. I see this playing out. I see a playbook being played. Mm. And I see us in the West walking into a trap. And that trap will involve the emergence of Trump part two. It's like Freddy Krueger. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah.
2: But a a Trump who will be totally different to the last Trump. The last Trump was a...
0: Well, he's he's learned... How to play the system?
2: He's now. he's he's unmasked. It's the last Trump was like, oh yeah. my God, this this is me. I'm here. How did I yeah. get here? Right? Yeah. This Trump, if Putin via the Israelis manages to split the democratic movement in America, there's nothing Biden can do. We're supposed to end on an up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's end it up.
0: <laughs> I'm afraid we are coming to the end, but let me ask you one last question. Then, and bring it back home to our. <laughs> Sorry, Ireland. okay. What would be the key issue in Ireland at the moment? Like, for instance, we have got a huge budget surplus, and we've got loads. We've. We don't know what to do with it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah we don't yeah. know what to do. Where would you, if I was to hand yeah. you that 15 billion or whatever the hell it is, where would you, where would you spend it?
2: Houses, houses, houses. It's so obvious. Most things are going right in this country, yeah. except for houses. And the economist, just so we'll end with an economist, who encapsulates for me the most interesting view on housing is a guy called Henry George. Ah, yes. and Henry George wrote a book called Poverty and Progress in the 1880s, late 1880s. It became the second biggest selling book in America after the Bible. the 1890s. So this was not some small movement. This was a massive, massive popular movement. And George identified the abuse of land and property, but particularly land. And what he said was that a society will never become egalitarianly rich if land hoarding is allowed to flourish. Mm. And what he meant by this was that you look at it, in Kilkenny, look at the amount of derelict buildings, right? And Kilkenny is by no means a poor example in Ireland, right? And what his idea was that the reason there is dereliction is because the people who own these buildings can afford the places to go derelict. His his idea was dereliction is a sign of wealth, not poverty. And if you put a tax on the sites that are derelict, what you do is you increase the cost of dereliction it becomes a cost to let land fallow it becomes a cost to hoard land it becomes a cost not to actually use land so his idea was that land is a precious resource that we have to encourage everything we can do to bring it into use Mm. and ironically and counterintuitively what he was saying is how you bring it into use is you tax it yeah and by taxing it You put a doubt into the person who owns the land in their head because it will actually cost them to hoard. Ireland is the second least populated country in Europe, which in economic terms should mean that we have the lowest land costs in Europe and we have the highest. Yeah. Right. So it's a scam. It's an actual scam. The market does not work. Because it's been interfered with at every level. And the crucial and absolute kernel of this is the precedence that the ownership of land is taking over the ownership of everything else. As long as we sit back and allow this to happen, if you have an economy where the population is rising, and we have, yeah. and you Make it almost impossible to bring land into use, and you don't create the incentives to encourage bringing land into use. You will have house prices going through the roof. You add on top of that many generations of Irish people understanding that housing is a way to become wealthy, and you pit the society against each other. Which is the following: I'll end here, is that we're a very strange society. Is When you don't own a house, you want house prices to fall. The minute you sign the contract to own the house, you want house prices to rise. So you're one and the same person, right? It's you. It's us. If we don't fix housing, the political pendulum will swing towards those who, in the Yeatsian example... Remember Yeats said... The best lack all conviction, allowing the worst with their passionate intensity to win the day. If the best people in society say, ah, land, shmand, what am I worried about? I'm all right, Jack. Mm. This will create a political groundswell which will move the society towards the worst type of people Who have passionate intensity in their aims? They have better slogans, they have worse thinking, and they emerge in the political process as a result of the best people doing nothing. That is why we should all read (laughs) Yeats. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) John Davis, ladies and gentlemen.
0: David McWilliams. (laughs) See you, bye bye. See you.